Let's start the show, though, by uh, talking a bit about the U.S. Constitution, of course, which is what we are reading this summer for the WDET Book Club. You can get a free copy of the Constitution and sign up to join that book club on our Facebook page. We have its own WDET Book Club Facebook page. You can also find out more at WDET.org slash Constitution. But at the time the Constitution was signed, Michigan wasn't yet part of the newly formed United States. It was sparsely populated by the French and the British, although thousands of indigenous people had lived in the region for many, 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 many years before. So what was happening in this area at the time our country was founded? Well, we wanted to know. So Culture Shift's Amanda LeClaire spoke with someone who would know, Billy Wall Winkle, with the Detroit Historical Museum. When the British conquered the area from the French in 1763, they, they considered, in their view, we were part of Canada. Michigan was part of Canada, so it wasn't part of the original 13 colonies, because when the 13 colonies were founded, this was French territory. Uh, the French set up uh, Detroit in uh, 1701. Uh, there was a major fur trading outpost, and so there's other, there other forts in Michigan and along the Mississippi River that were in French control that weren't part of the 13 colonies. So while uh, Michigan and Detroit were well known to the European powers by the time of the American Revolution in 1776. And so before that happened, this was this was still a hotly, not disputed, but, but hotly wanted territory um, because of the Great Lakes, because of the trading uh, routes, right? Yeah, so Detroit operates uh, well, Detroit exists on a really, really vital trading point because it's a small point between two of the major Great Lakes, which connect to the rest of the Great Lakes, and it's easily defensible. Detroit exists in a really important space geographically because it's easily defensible. You don't need a lot of troops to defend a fort here, which makes it ideal for European powers who couldn't send a lot of troops to defend this area. They could defend it with fewer troops and which made it far more um, economic for them to be here. We've been focusing on the Constitution, focusing on what created the, the American Republic or democracy, whichever one you want to go for. Michigan and this territory, what were people in the colonies thinking about this area around that time? That we were a backwater? <laughs> Uh, Detroit and Michigan as a whole at the time were really hard to get to. Uh, they were, they were, we were about a month away, and that month journey was not fun. Uh, if, you, if you made it to Michigan, if you made it to Detroit, you were kind of staying here. This isn't a place you visited. So the British took over the area in 1763. There was about 2,000 people in Detroit, but then a lot of those people left because they were French. And so they went to St. Louis and they went to other places along the Mississippi River that were more French. But then the population slowly rebounded about 30 years later by the time the Americans took over. So there's about 2,000 people in the city. But that was still relatively small compared to the colonies on the East Coast. So in many, in many respects, Detroit was still a village, uh, a little town by the time the Americans came to town in 1796. That all changed about... 20 or so years later with the creation and completion of the Erie Canal, which cut down travel time to Detroit to about 11 days by boat, which more people were willing to do. 
I, I don't blame them. Journeying was a very dangerous thing back in that day. So I want to go before before the British were here. Um, we we all know the story pretty well of how Cadillac uh, founded Detroit in 1701. Had a falling out with the indigenous peoples who were here before. Let's talk about who, who, who those were, because uh, Native Americans were the dominant population until the 1800s. Oh, yes. So when uh, Cadillac and the early French settlers arrived, Detroit was populated by the Anishinaabe people, which is the Ottawa, the Ojibwe, and the Potawatomi. Also, most third graders know them as the Council of the Three Fires. The Fox, the Sioux, the Iroquois, the Miami, all those tribes uh, were were well familiar with with the Detroit River region because it was such a great place to trade. And so what happened to those people once the, the French came in and settled, and then especially when the British came in? So while the French didn't always have the best relationship, especially Cadillac, Cadillac was, he screwed everybody over. <laughs> uh, that's why he got kicked out of Detroit, actually. But the, the French were fully aware that they entirely relied on the indigenous communities to make money. So we don't necessarily see full-blown settler colonialism under the French rule. French populations were extremely small uh, in the New World compared to the British. When the British arrived in the Ohio River Valley and in Michigan, they brought their brand of settler colonialism with them. So that meant larger European populations that meant pushing out indigenous people, uh, which is where the Americans got it from. That's where we, that's where we get the tradition from. So they still lived in the area uh, through the time that uh, the Constitution was being written, but most of them uh, were forced out actually in 1807 with the Treaty of Detroit, uh, which was a treaty that ceded what we know today as Southeast Michigan uh, from, the, from the tribes to the Americans. All right, so let's talk about what people in in Detroit and in Michigan, uh, as far as we know, the, the, the British settlers were obviously aware of what was going on in the colonies to the east. Is there any, are there any historical documents that talk about, you know, what, what their thoughts were on what was happening? I'm not so sure about the thoughts on what happened, but Detroit was uh, significantly impacted by the revolution, uh, especially its, its aftermath, just like it was when the British uh, took over from the French. Uh, one uh, interesting change in the city was uh, the way slavery operated in Detroit. Uh, Detroit had slavery from the, since its inception in 1701, but it was primarily uh, indigenous slaves uh, that were kept in the city. Follow, or during and following the revolution, uh, African slaves were brought to Detroit because to, uh, British soldiers based in Detroit were sent on raids to Kentucky and uh, southern states and they actually brought uh, captured enslaved people back with them. Uh, trading changed significantly. People started deciding to live on the Canadian or the upper Canadian side of the Detroit River rather than in Detroit, fully expecting uh, trade to be disrupted. So families kind of broke up uh, whether or not they're going to stay in Detroit or they were going to go across the river to Sandwich. And while like these these things are happening, it, there isn't any like violence going on. Like there's no battles taking place this far. The the invasion of Canada fails, uh, and Detroit is held throughout the 
rebellion by the British forces. All right. So throughout the uh, American Revolutionary War, this area was held onto by the British. Uh, but once the colonies uh, successfully left uh, Britain's rule and became what we know as the beginnings of the United States, they were making some laws to do with what they call the Northwest Territories, including Detroit, including Michigan. Uh, and one of those things, let's go back to the history of slavery in this area. Uh, they did ban it here, but they did not have the ability to enforce that ban. Is that correct? Technically, they banned it. They banned uh, bringing more enslaved people into the Northwest Territories. What they did was they wanted to stop the spread of slavery in the territories, especially in the Northwest Territories, but they didn't free the people who are currently here. Uh, so people uh, who were enslaved uh, stayed enslaved. There, was, there were enslaved people in Detroit until the 18, early 1830s. Uh, but what did happen was, yeah, they were making they were making laws and ordinances and everything for territory they didn't control because the British didn't leave Detroit. They didn't leave Detroit. They didn't leave Mackinac. They didn't leave Niagara. And they occupied those forts uh, for another 13 years until the completion of Jay's Treaty and the American agreement that we would pay war debts, certain war debts to the, to England that were incurred before, during, or after the revolution, especially loyalist property. We had to pay out loyalist property. We're talking now, we're getting into the early 1800s or at least like late 1700s when American troops, newly formed American troops basically started entering Detroit and ended British rule over these territories. So let's get into some of the primary players at that time. So General Anthony Wayne, which is going to be a name familiar, hopefully to everyone here. He was one of the generals who defeated British troops in, in 1794 or so. Yeah, so uh, General Anthony Wayne was in charge of a lot of the wars against native tribes in the Ohio River Valley. And the a lot of the tribes in the Ohio River Valley were allied with the British. And so he defeated them at the uh, coalition of tribes at the Battle of Fallen Timbers, which gets its name because the battlefield they were fighting on had just had a tornado go through it. So all the trees were on the ground. The Native American coalition uh, asked the British for aid and the British refused, which also severely uh, hindered the British's, Britain's position in the Ohio River Valley and an extension Michigan. But that battle paved the way along with Jay's treaty to uh, Colonel John Francis Hamtramck arriving in Detroit and then the, the British later surrendering the fort to uh, Captain Moses Porter. Right around at the time that the this area, Detroit especially, came under American uh, rule, I, early 1800s, 1803 or 04, you'll, you'll be able to tell me exactly, Detroit suffered an incredible incredibly devastating fire. And we need to go into that a little bit because not only did it change the way the city looked, it also brought in a lot of new people, especially folks from uh, Augustus Woodward would have been coming in around that time to rebuild the city. Yeah. So the, the Great Fire of 1805 destroyed that, that town I talked about earlier. So Detroit was a still smaller place, but 
everyone kind of knew that the Americans were going to keep progressing, like especially Americans. They knew they were going to keep going and they knew Detroit was a vital space that was poised for explosive growth. This is still before the uh, creation of the Erie Canal. So we're not getting those thousand people a day that we'll see later on, but they wanted Detroit to not be the, the backwater town that it was. So they created a plan called, uh, it was known today as many as the, as the Woodward plan to create that spoke wheel design for downtown uh, and the greater downtown area and make it look more like a European city. They wanted it to be brick. They wanted it to be sophisticated and they wanted it to be a statement that this city is poised for something greater. Well, that and that the Americans could afford to do something like this. So let's talk about Gabriel Richard, because he was another big player around this time. Who was he and, and what is his legacy here in Detroit? Uh, Gabriel Richard uh, was born in France. He was born in France in uh, 1767. And he was a priest who came to the territory and he came to Detroit in the late 1790s. And he was a staple here in the city. Uh, he was known uh, for speaking out against slavery. He was known for uh, working on building the city as much as possible. Um, his library of over 240 books, which is not small uh, in those days, uh, has been preserved at uh, Sacred Heart Seminary and is at the University of Michigan now. He was, um, he, he coined uh, Detroit's uh, motto, we hope for better things, we will rise from the ashes. I'm terrible at saying the Latin, so if you want to say it, <laughs> go right ahead. <laughs> I don't want to butcher that for everyone to hear. But he also uh, established a one of the early schools in 1808 for both uh, Native American and white children to attend. And uh, he was he was a city elder until his death uh, from uh, one of the cholera epidemics, actually, in 1832. We were behind Ohio in getting population, enough population to become a state. But Detroit uh, was serving as the gateway to the rest of the Northwest Territories at that point. So as we are literally doubling in population every 10 years, uh, we are not only getting new people for ourselves, but people are passing through to go to Minnesota, Wisconsin, Illinois, elsewhere, because this is where the Erie Canal dropped you off. So we not only had commerce from the people who were here, but huge uh, trading opportunities. So Detroit was a booming, booming place, and the rest of the state uh, came along with it. And then we get uh, later on, we get the, the famous uh, Toledo War where we want the Toledo Strip, but Ohio does too. So in, in exchange, we get the Upper Peninsula, which in the long term was a much better deal. <laughs> but the other thing that's really important to talk about during this era, especially in terms of slavery, is 1833. We get the, the Blackburn Uprising and the ensuing riot afterwards. Uh, Detroit was, for a very long time, uh, the home of enslaved people. Uh, people were kept in bondage uh, in the city for 130 years. And while Detroit and Michigan were, were poised to enter the Union as a free state, there was a lot of Southern uh, sympathizers here. And Detroit was a 
major hub for runaway slaves and people fleeing bondage in the South. All that came to a head in 1833 when Thornton and Lucy Blackburn, who were two escaped enslaved people from Kentucky, were discovered and arrested. Uh, they were poised to get sent back to Kentucky, but the, the abolitionist community in Detroit got together and broke them out of jail, uh, one by stealth, one by force, and they made their way to Canada. That, that galvanized uh, Detroit's abolitionist community, which set the foundation for Detroit being a hub on the Underground Railroad and really reinforced its, at least that community's commitment to freedom and Detroit living up, uh, Michigan living up to its free state name. That was Billy Wall-Winkle with the Detroit Historical Museum talking with Amanda LeClaire about some of our prehistory here in Michigan. Interesting stuff. And of course, all part of our celebration of the Constitution that we're doing this summer. WDET.org slash Constitution to see all of it. The serious discussion, the lighter discussion, it's all there. Plus, there is the book club page. You can join that book club page on Facebook. WDET Book Club.